with Albert and Timon Brown. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Those who have listened to Fangraphs Audio for, I will say, two years, I will guess two years, those who have listened to Fangraphs Audio for approximately two years, might remember a story, a sort of harrowing story that Dave Cameron related on Fangraphs Audio about two years ago involving the somewhat mysterious and definitely unfortunate murder of his grandfather some time ago in Baltimore, Maryland. You might also remember Dave Cameron noting that a cousin of his was making a documentary about same. Well, in fact, that documentary has been made, is complete, and is in fact showing this coming weekend at the Maryland Film Festival. The name of the documentary is Baltimore in Black and White. And actually, Dave Cameron flew to San Francisco, uh, or at least the Bay Area, this past weekend to see an advanced screening of that documentary. And instead of analyzing all baseball, as he does week after week, what uh, what Dave Cameron does in what follows is both discuss uh, that documentary specifically uh, and then to address some ideas that come out of it. He also answers some uh, very dumb and very naive questions that I ask him. Mm, Carson, you, you might say all of the questions you ask are, are dumb and naive. Um, yes, true, but in fact, I ask even dumber and more naive questions in What Follows. What Follows is an addition to Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron in a slightly different mode than usual, and it is, for better or worse, Fangraphs Audio. Maybe I mean maybe a little bit tired, but not very tired. Oh, I'm pretty tired. You took a red eye. I did. Yeah. You know, once you're an adult, you shouldn't do that. Well, it's a million dollar choice. Yeah. But it's not good for you. Yeah, I don't think it's good for kids either. Yeah, but uh, I should say like maybe like when you, like in your twenties, maybe it's easier. But you're in your thirties, Dave Cameron. Yeah, I'm slowing down. Yeah, you're slowing down. Not speed. I've lost. A, I've, I've lost a step. <laughs> yeah, you have. Yeah. You're not. Uh, you may not be in the best shape of your life. I am not. That is true. No. Although also, not in the worst shape of my life, though. No, it's no. also true. There are Something times to, when you uh, be happy about when you have conspicuously been in worse shape. Yeah. Uh, you're doing it now. You took a uh, you took a red eye flight for a purpose. Though you were in San Francisco. I went to San Francisco for the weekend. Yeah. Well, um, the Bay Area. I mean, I flew into San Francisco, but I was I was in the general Bay Area. And what were you doing there, Dave Cameron? Are you allowed to talk about what you were doing there? I am allowed to talk about it. So my mom's family is based in the Oakland, Alameda area. Um, she's one of 13. Uh, she's the middle of the seventh child out of 13. And uh, most of her siblings live in the, the general area. And one of my cousins, who's a filmmaker, um, has made a documentary about um, the circumstances and the reactions to the murder of their father, who was my grandfather, back in 1972 in Baltimore. And uh, this is, I mean, I never met my grandfather, and I've never really known much about him. And uh, it's kind of interesting how a family who's so large, I've, you know, 
uh, enough cousins to fill several baseball teams. Um, and that's pretty close knit has basically not told any part of the history of the story to their kids, like my generation and my cousins. We know nothing about our grandfather. Right. Or very little, very little. You know nothing about, about him in general or you know nothing about, um, the circumstances surrounding his death or both? Both. Uh, I mean, we, so we were all told that he was killed. Um, but we didn't really know how. And I think the, the movie kind of explores what the family believes and why they believe it and whether, whether their beliefs are actually true. Um, the, the story actually that I was told as a, as a kid or the story I remember being told, um, is that, uh, someone, uh, purchased a gun and wanted to find out if it worked and randomly killed my father just to ensure that his gun worked. That turns out that's not true. I don't know where that story came from. My, my mom does not remember telling me that. Uh, but during the movie you hear, uh, other people describe what they believe happened, including the, the children at the time who were there and who were alive and in Baltimore when it happened. And they all have different recollections. Some thought it was a mugging. Some thought it was, uh, a race crime. And so part of the, the movie is, about the race relations in Baltimore in the 60s and 70s and um, kind of the the paradox of this family whose um, patriarch was a activist for social justice who was on his way to a meeting to protest a road being uh, built through a black neighborhood uh, as a white man going to protest in favor of, of a, a black issue murdered by black teens uh, who then were not convicted and no one was ever, uh, no one ever went to jail for the crime. So it's essentially an unsolved murder. Um, well, Baltimore, with, I think that it's pretty clear that Baltimore, m- m- maybe not to the extent of, or m- maybe only with the exception of Detroit, is a city that um, has had a, n- a number of problems. Right. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's one of the issues the film which uh, is called Baltimore in Black and White and uh, premieres for the public uh, at the Maryland Film Festival this weekend. So if you're in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area and you're interested in this kind of thing, uh, there's a Friday night and Saturday morning showing, um, and I think tickets are still available. Um, but the, the film is basically about Baltimore and racial tensions in Baltimore with my mom's family is kind of the setting for that conversation. Right, and so wait, so your family grew up in, it, or it seems like your family at some point ended up on the West Coast. How did that, was so it they, sort of in the wake of that event that they all moved? So they were from California. That's where the first nine of 13 were born. Um, and then the family relocated to Baltimore because of my grandfather's job, and they were there for 15 years before he got killed. And then in the wake of his murder, the mom, or my grandma, took the family back to the West Coast where uh, most of them had been born. It's where she was from. It's where her friends were from. The only reason she moved to Baltimore is for her husband's job. And then once he was no longer alive, there was no reason for her to stay. And, and they got out as quickly as they could. So it's it, 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 one thing that's sort of interesting, and I say interesting in the hopefully what is the most respectful manner because obviously it uh, it concerns the sort of the, well, the entirely unfortunate death of a like a real person, but one thing what you're describing seems to reveal is 
the curious way in which information is, especially of a sensitive nature, is disseminated from one generation to the next. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, how there's always like a chance, especially when you're trying to explain um, issues of life and death, et cetera, to, to children, the way things are explained is, if they are explained, is usually uh, highly euphemistic. Yeah, right. And I think it, it's interesting. I mean, this the story is interesting on, on multiple levels. And even though it is the death of my grandfather, I do find it an interesting story, as does my cousin, which is why she made the movie. Um, but just kind of the way the family reacted to the not just the death of their father, but the fact that it was potentially a uh, racially motivated crime for a family who had a um, primary uh position of being inclusive in a in a city and in a time that was not. Uh this was a strong family position of being friends with black kids and uh attending uh a school in an area with black children and thinking of themselves as a progressive family for the seventies and then being immediately confronted with, well, now what do we believe now that we have this racial Maybe, perhaps racial crime, and that's one of the things in the movie is you see some of the siblings believe it was a racial crime and some believe it was just a mugging gone wrong and there's still not agreement on that today. Like how, how a family of 13 views an, uh, an issue like this through their own perspective is kind of fascinating to watch and realizing like people will come up with their own very strong beliefs of an issue, of an event where they weren't there and they are going off of third or fourth hand stories and they have come to have very fierce opinions about uh the the motivation behind the crime even though we don't have a lot of evidence right and and, and we actually i mean obviously you and i both think about baseball quite a bit but well, yeah. you you probably think about baseball more than i do but i'm supposed to be thinking about it um but one of the things of course one of the issues with which uh we deal with is <clears throat> this idea of I, mean, I don't know if it's an example of confirmation bias or if it's another sort of fallacy, um, but where where individuals are, I guess they are incentivized at some level. Uh, it, it's a, it, uh, on, a le- on a level of personal identity to interpret certain events or certain um, facts in a, in, a, in a way that I guess helps them to. Um, um, it helps them to maintain a sort of uh, a clear, a clearish worldview, or something that, or to to interpret facts in a way that conforms to their to their worldview. Yeah, I mean, I think for me that was one of the most fascinating aspects of the, of the movie is to watch people fit the facts to fit what they already believe. And so, in one of the more powerful scenes is my uncle Tommy, who's the youngest of the thirteen. He was nine when his dad was killed. So it had the most profound impact on him. Some of them were already away at college and married and had children. He was the one that was he really lost his father in his in his childhood, and um, it's really had a significant impact on him. And so in the movie, he's describing about about the crime and how angry he is that justice wasn't served, and he describes how uh, the system was tainted against their family, where uh, the prosecutor, the defense attorney for the accused was one of the most powerful civil rights attorneys in Baltimore at the time. Uh, it was an all-black jury. It was a black judge. And they got off on a technicality. That's the story he believes. He repeats on camera. 
he this is his his truth about this crime. And then my cousin goes and digs through the court records and finds out that it was a white judge and a normal jury that wasn't all black, and there was no actual evidence that there were any kind of civil rights issues argued in front of the case. She just took the the case as a favor to a family friend, uh, and that it wasn't that there's no actual historical record the, of this being a race issue. Um, but this is his truth, and he has created facts to fit his own belief, which is. Uh, I think more common than we're willing to admit in all aspects of our life. But there must be there must be like a um, reason we do that. I mean, there must be a sort of positive. Um, I, I, that must be an instinct for some reason that has helped us. That has helped humans in the past. I mean, and and uh, I, mean, I don't know for a fact, but I, I assume that's the case. Uh, maybe. I mean, I think that's. Um... That would be a tough thing to prove, right, is that this instinct to create facts to fit our preconceived ideas of truth have been beneficial to us at some point. I mean, I could maybe create a hypothetical where that could be true, but it also seems dangerous to have the capability to bend the actual reality of what happened uh, in your mind and convince yourself that something else happened because it's more convenient with what you already believe. That's not a helpful trait, I don't think. No, but if you don't have a shorthand for dealing with the world at some level, then then um, then is it just it's just a scattering of events? I mean, don't you want to be able to attribute some meaning to some events that pass? Otherwise, you're just uh, I mean, the, the things just fall apart. Well, yeah, but I think the the hope would be that we would attribute the actual meaning and not just invent our own. I mean, I think if we want to tie this into baseball, I think one of the ways we see a similar reaction is when it comes to defensive metrics, is people see a player play however many games they watch on TV and go to a stadium. Maybe if you're a really passionate fan, maybe you watch 50 or 100 games a year uh, the whole way through and you see a player make 30 or 40 plays that are, uh, you know, maybe another player wouldn't have made it. They're not a routine play. And we become definitive in our belief that we uh, understand a player's defensive valuation. And if anyone creates a metric that does not agree with your preconceived notion, the metric is obviously flawed. Like there's no room for uh, the idea that your notion of this player's defensive value might be wrong. It's the the metric has to fit the preconceived idea. And I think it's interesting to see how people cling to this truth of their own uh, and say, this is right, and I don't need any more evidence to to uh, confirm this, and I don't need to see any data to support this. I just know in my heart this is right, and I'm going to go forward with it. And, you know, I, I mean, I love my aunts and uncles, and some of them through the film are are kind of portraying that and saying, uh, I don't... I don't actually, I didn't go to the trial. I don't actually know the facts, but I'm sure that this was a mugging gone wrong. This was not a race crime. And others are, you know, uh, well, I'm pretty sure that in Baltimore, if three black teenagers killed a white man, it must have been a race issue. And we come to these conclusions based on very thin strands of evidence. And we can, I think we can see that in baseball and in all walks of life. Do I, do, um, it, I mean, it seemed like the movie had some impact on you. Do you think it, it, um, was because you have some sort of uh, an intimate connection to the subject matter? Do you think it was because of the, the narrative itself, or do you think it was a com combination of the two? 
So I think probably the most impactful thing for me is that the film essentially introduced me to my grandfather. I mean, this is a man who I never met and never really heard much about. Um, and, and the film kind of deals with the fact that the family basically just stopped talking about him and removed him from the family history after the murder. Why is a question of interpretation, whether it was guilt about what happened or how they reacted or who knows. But essentially my generation got no information about our grandfather. So for me, I heard things about my grandfather in this movie that I didn't, I didn't know. And I heard people describe him in ways that were completely new to me, but also just kind of the, the context of the time I found, um, it's an interesting paradox in that uh, you have this white family who moves to Baltimore in a time of, you know, racial tension, and they are, they definitely consider themselves progressive thinkers. Several of them are Marxists. They're political radicals. They're um, on the front lines of fighting for equality, um, you know, describing how my grandfather took several of them to go see Martin Luther King speak. Um, and this is like a value of their family and then to have that worldview kind of turned upside down by uh, a direct impact of, um, you know, black on white crime and how they deal with what they thought they believed in their head when it became time to to act on what they believed and say, okay, do I actually believe this or was just this a theory that I was espousing? Uh, right. It's, it does seem as though if people, um, I say this anecdotally, if people feel as though they're sort of, um, the thing which they believe they are maybe they they feel betrayed, uh, and they can actually. I mean, well, this happens. I feel like in uh, love relationships sometimes. If you have a, um, we'll we'll take a man and a woman, and if a if a they could love each other or they think they love each other, but then if the man, for example, finds out that the woman has been cheating on him, now they've gone from a situation where they feel as though they're more intimately connected than everyone. Uh, than, than they are to anyone else, that they might feel then, then the man might feel more, might feel incredibly deceived and now will hate that woman more than he hates anyone in the world. This, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, to speculate, <laughs> but it sounds like you might be speaking from the, some, some personal experience, or at oh. least you are in the moment of a, a very angry man. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. No, but my, my point <laughs> is that, no, my point is that it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's something I've observed, right? Where you right. feel as though you have some sort of you. You feel like in those moments where you feel deceived, it's hard. It's hard, to, I guess, to feel deceived by someone you did not like to begin with, right? Right. Yes. And or by a cause that you did not feel strongly about. So if you felt strongly about civil rights, and then there was a, something like this, uh, you know, a murder in this situation. And you somehow interpret it as as a as an affront, as being deceived by the cause in which you felt so deeply. Then it would be easy to reverse your position um, 180 degrees. Right, and I, I think the reaction uh, or lack of reaction from the family to the, I mean, I think so. My uncle Tommy, who's the most upset about the fact that the people who were accused of the crime got off, uh, whether they did or not. I mean, we don't know to be honest. Um, but no one was ever convicted of the crime. Uh, and he felt that the older members of the family did not do enough to kind of go after justice and to, um, you know, they didn't go, the whole family didn't go to the court every day and cry and manipulate the jury with tears and uh, play the sobbing family. Like they didn't do that and they moved and, um, you know, at least a year later or so. Um, and so there's this 
aspect of not apathy, but there was not this tremendous response. And it's one of these questions of why, like, why did the family respond in the way they responded? Um, and was it, you know, in part because of guilt or was it part, uh, because their beliefs were being challenged and they didn't know what to feel? Or, uh, I think, you know, it, it's an interesting question of what we do when, uh, when the real world interferes on what we think we believe. Wait, and he was, you said he was like nine when this happened, right? My uncle Tommy was nine. Yeah. yeah. He was yeah. the youngest. So a lot of his, a lot of the thoughts that he, uh, presumably he still, uh, maintains or preserves about about the case are from are informed essentially by a nine year old's perception of them. Correct. Yeah. So I think I mean the contrast between him and the rest of the family for I mean I, I would assume most of uh, the people listening to the podcast won't see the film so I'm not trying to give away too many spoilers but you know for the for the interest of the fact that this is not available on Netflix or something so you can't go watch this tomorrow. Uh, so the the twelve the the twelve older respond in a way that can be somewhat uniform. That's not the same across the board, but their their responses to it are sadness and um, you know the, uh, a similar feeling across the uh, the way. And then there's the contrast of the youngest, my uncle Tommy, who is angry, and you see the difference between his response and everyone else's response, and it's kind it's shocking. And one of those things that you see this is how people interpret events very differently and how they can have a massively different impact on people, even though it's the same event. Yeah. It's a, uh... well, I, can I tell you something? I, and it, you're, you're, uh, well, you're half my boss. I don't know. Or maybe you're totally my boss or maybe you're mm. 0% my boss. What percent my boss do you think I am? Uh, I think Appleman is your boss. I, I, you will report to me for your content <laughs> on the main blog, so like 5%. I don't know. I mean, you write a lot of Nodgrass posts. So. Yeah. Would you uh, – so – I take feel, no responsibility for any of those, by do the you, way. No, I know you do. I, I have no control over Nodgrass. Uh, do, you, do you feel – do we uh, – do you feel a necessity to tie this to tie this back to the game that is our responsibility to cover? Or or do you feel as though we can – we could continue. We could continue discussing this. I mean, I look. I look forward to the comments uh, because you know I answer like two questions about my dog in the chat, and everyone loses their mind. So if we do a forty-minute podcast with no baseball, this is going to be a fantastic discussion. <laughs> I, I can only imagine the positive response we're going to get from doing a podcast that does not contain baseball conversation. Right. Well, you know, typically when I do the Dane Perry uh, episodes of the podcast, I always say, I would say, if you're looking for the sort of analysis that appears in fangraphs don't listen to this. Right. And I say I say it over and over. I say don't listen, don't listen, don't listen. Right. I, then That's I say be really good for the for the traffic. Yeah, well then I say listen to listen to uh, the weekly episode I do with Dave Cameron because that is all baseball all the time. And then this week we're betraying that trust. Yeah, right. They're, they're going to believe in something and then they're going to get something totally different. Well, here here's a question I have um that I think will blend the two is um I think it's I think it's fair to say that one of the ways in which baseball analysis has been improved and is constantly improved is the introduction of ideas from multiple disciplines. Is a sort of interdisciplinary approach, right? Um, I mean, the fact that you choose to analyze it in the first place is sort of uh, you know obviously you have to introduce ideas from other fields, but the more I mean certainly the the, the more that we have introduced or that that uh, People have introduced 
statistical concepts or uh, concepts from economics. Um, that has improved the way in which the game. Uh, that has improved the way in which the anal- that has improved the analysis of the game. Yes, I, I would. I am not sure there was a question in there. No, but my point is, I guess, like, what are the sort of, in what ways has analysis been? I guess, I say, in your opinion, in what ways has analysis, or just maybe even appreciation of the game, been informed by sort of an interdisciplinary approach, and by what, you know, fields? What fields do you think have contributed to the um, enjoyment of or analysis of the game most considerably, for you or in general? I mean, I think probably anything to do with the statistical analysis community. I mean, you could basically pick a discipline within that, whether it be economics or um, statistics or, you know, whatever kind of math uh, discipline you wanted to pick and say, these are the generally the areas of which, you know, the likes of Bill James and uh, that kind of thinking has come from, or at least has fostered uh, discussion and thrived. And so, you know, not, uh, not every person in, the, I mean, including Bill James is not a statistician. He's a writer who's just happens to understand concepts very well. Um, but I think that that, the community that has kind of advanced the analysis of baseball has been statistically inclined and then, uh, numerically oriented. Um, whether that's a, you know, a credit to those people for, uh, wading into baseball to improve analysis or just kind of a selection bias and the, the kind of people who would be interested in both baseball and numbers also happen to be uh, successful in fields relating to numbers, uh, you know, it seems to me like maybe it's the latter. Right. Do you, <clears throat> it's interesting, I mean, you bring that up about Bill James, but in, in that, that's my understanding of Bill James as well, um, is that he did not really have a, any sort of history in statistics or economics per se it was just that he his his skill which i suppose is still his skill and is hopefully the main skill of people who are thinking about the game is is just the capacity for asking questions and not accepting sort of uh, traditional wisdom right i think his greatest strength is to say what is what is actually happening here and not just the rote what he was taught by announcers or reading the paper or whatever, he said, I'm going to question and try to come up with an answer of this thing that is actually occurring and see if I can come up with the actual answer and not the, the narrative answer that I've been told. Uh, and he, you know, certainly not a trained statistician. I think you can see that in a lot of the things he's created, like game score, uh, you know, some of his toys, or uh, they work, but they're not mathematically rigorous. They're not models that would stand up to a peer-reviewed, uh, you know, econometrics paper. Uh, but they, they work in the realm of baseball because he understood the game and he understood how to, uh, weight things relative to each other and for the most part. And he could create, uh, kind of toy type metrics that weren't necessarily empirically perfect, but what were good enough to tell the story and simple enough for the average human being to understand. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. I actually had the pleasure, uh, recently, um, my wife and I sort of went on like a week and a half tour of the south of France. And, uh, Is it anything like the south of America where there's like rednecks and biscuits? And... It's very similar. Yeah, it's <laughs> the exact same thing actually. Um, <clears throat> uh, though there is cassoulet in Toulouse, which is a, uh, a dish that is, I don't know, native to that. It's, uh, it's delicious. 
It's like a casserole with white beans and duck. Uh, I mean, yeah. you put put duck in something and it improves it. It does, yeah. Dessert, dessert, maybe. Not dessert, no. But uh, well, an Iron Chef, you might have to if, you, <laughs> yeah, if right, that was the ingredient. Right. But um, yeah. um, no. But actually, I saw we stopped in. We were in Toulouse for two uh, for two days. We stayed with a reader of Fangraphs, Mister uh, Mister P T Scott. Oh um, yes. Do you know him? Have you heard of him? I I have heard of him because he co-wrote. Uh, all right, he maybe he started. Oh yeah, he co-wrote uh, a correction to a paper with Phil Birnbaum. Right. And yes. and the thing that was interesting and that relates to what you were saying is that you said uh, frequently within uh, the baseball community or you know or Bill James specifically, his writing would not necessarily hold up to like peer-reviewed journal, peer-reviewed journals or would not necessarily appear in peer-reviewed journals. The the difficulty is that those when academics write about baseball, is that sometimes what they write oughtn't be oughtn't appear in peer reviewed journals, even though it does. <laughs> right. I think the the what we've seen, and this doesn't apply for every academic who writes about baseball. Some of it's very good, uh, but the academic community and the sabermetric community kind of don't talk to each other uh, for the most part. It seems like the academic community has some level of disdain or um, not a does not hold the metric community in high regard because of the way metrics are developed. It does not fit within their their method of discussion and uh, does not pass their standard for acceptance. And so uh, they kind of stick to themselves and the metric community sticks to itself and, and there's a lot of reinventing the wheel and sometimes you're inventing a wheel that was better design 15 years ago. And so maybe the academic community will come out and be like, we figured this out. And the sabermetric community will be like, we figured this out 20 years ago and you're wrong. Right. Well, it's interesting, right? Cause it's like, cause it, at, I mean, at, at a basic level, the, the sabermetric community is a, is a hobbyist's community or an enthusiast's community. Yeah. I think but that's it, a fair to say. Yeah. Right. But it's also one that is populated in large part by Edu- by educated people. Right. It is the hobby of some very smart folks. Right. And so, and so you have a company excluded, of course. <laughs> and so you have a situation though, right? Where you have, yes, you ha- you do have hobbyists, um, but they tend to have, they tend to have training in, well, like take, take someone like, uh, Russell Carlton, for example. Mm. Uh, Russell Carlton, um, I'm not smart enough to, to evaluate the rigor of all of his work, but I know that he's done that he that he has like what he's got a PhD in psychology, maybe. Yeah, I believe that's true. Yes. Does that sound sociology? Sociology, one I mean, of the two. One of the one of the two. But the point is that he's done a lot of he's done a lot of work, um, and he and he has a like a pretty strong set of tools for dealing with uh, statistical analysis. Even though I don't know if he's ever written a an academic paper on baseball. Right. And I think, you know, there's certainly examples of, like, Matt Swartz, who's written for Fangraphs and the Hardball Times and, uh, you know, is a, has a PhD in, in econometrics and is a, uh, definitely fits into the academic, economics crowd, but is also part of the sabermetric community. I mean, it's not a total, uh, lack of, of transfer between the two. Uh, Brian Mills is another one who floats in between both communities and does it well. Um, but there are certainly some, uh, probably most prominently like J.C. Bradbury, who's published several 
books on the economics of baseball and has a, maintained a blog called Sabernomics for years that he shut down, I guess, a couple of years ago, uh, where he wrote uh, about kind of the contracts of baseball and and did similar types of analysis to what we do on Fangraphs and what other people have done other places, but did it from a very different way and came to very different conclusions based on some of his assumptions and and would not relent when when challenged with some uh, potential problems in his methodology because he was the academic and we were the hobbyists. Uh, right. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, is is Phil Birnbaum's like is his kind of role because because Phil Birnbaum seems to have a lot of skills so far as um, uh, statistical modeling goes. Is that true? Yeah, I think he his role in the Sabre community is kind of like ombudsman or something where he <laughs> he checks in and is like, well, this is full of crap, uh, and here's why, and he does like a very eloquent takedown of something and be like, this is awful, and I think if something gets the Phil Birnbaum stamp of approval, you can be fairly certain that it's probably pretty good because he does not endorse things lightly. Where, and where he, is Phil Birnbaum? Where is he in yeah, the world yeah. like right now? Yeah, like, well, probably know. hanging out with Carmen Sandiego. <laughs> Do we know who he is? I mean, he's not, that's I mean, not, a, that's not a, I assume that's not um, a fake name. <laughs> Why would you? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Phil Birnbaum's a real, I've met him. He's a human being. Uh, he is a uh, member of Sabre. He runs their statistical analysis committee, uh, and he puts out research through the Sabre arm. He also has his own blog. Uh yeah, and I think he's just on that a normal guy. I mean, he, I think, is the definition of a hobbyist. He's not doing this for a living. Uh, he doesn't work for a major league team, as far as I know. He is uh, a guy who has a job, and then baseball is his uh, release. Right. Hey, here's a question that's not related at all. Well, um, we're, good at the, we're good at those. those yeah, no, questions. but but it's it's related to Baltimore, and it also would apply to Detroit too. Um, I don't I don't actually know what the the sort of I'll be honest. Most of what I know from Baltimore, I've learned most, the wire. Re- is most recently from the Wire. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and most of what I know from Detroit is well, because uh, having lived in the Midwest for three years, and I, I became friends with people who I became. Well, my wife's family lived in Detroit. Her her uncle and um, lived in Detroit, and. I don't know if it was before or after the the sort of race riots that took place there in the 70s and the or the early the late 60s, uh, and then the, the sort of the white flight which preceded that. Um, I I know it's clear to me that that Detroit is a city that that has problems on a pretty enormous scale, um, and that that Baltimore also has problems. I, I again I'm I'm an idiot, so when it comes to this, I just know that there's problems and that there's uh, I don't know if you even know if racial tension exists because it seems like there's, like it's pretty segregated by neighborhood. That could also be wrong. Yeah, no, I mean this is one of the issues of the film, and and I think uh, one of the maybe the more compelling parts of the film is um, at one point one of my aunt Roberta who uh, attended the trial uh, was one of the was one of the siblings who did go, um, and so in the film there's this kind of not a sequence, but a series of scenes where she returns to Baltimore and she finds an old high school friend uh, who happened to be black. They were really close when they were in, in high school. And this friend that she found, uh, whatever, 40 years later, uh, had told her that she had seen some uh, teenagers bragging about murdering a white man. And this was the genesis of the 
of the story within the family of, well, we all know what happened and they just got off on a technicality and, uh, or they got off because they had a fancy lawyer or whatever, but we know they did it because they were bragging at this party. And you see, uh, this black woman, uh, becomes very involved in the documentary and she's a recurring character. And at the end of the film, again, not to give too many spoilers, but there's a scene where my cousin Emily is talking to her and she's been an instrumental in trying to help them find the people who were arrested and to kind of help them navigate their way through, a, 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 you know, sorting through the facts 40 years later. And she says, you know, let's not forget, like, I, I'm your friend, I'm helping you with this, but I'm black and you're white, and there's a huge divide here, and that hasn't changed. And, you know, just because I'm helping you with this doesn't mean that there's not um, some real problems still here in Baltimore and, and this thing hasn't changed. It's not like we've conquered racism. There's still an issue here, uh, and we can't just ignore it. And, um, I think it's a, you know, kind of a powerful reminder that, um, you know, this is not the civil rights, uh, fight of 50 years ago is dead and now we're moved on to new fights. It's like, this is still an issue in America and, and in Baltimore. Yeah, and I, so I think about this like with regard to, to Detroit and maybe Baltimore applies and maybe, um, maybe maybe it might apply to to uh, at some level to the Chicago White Sox as well because I think there's been um, there because quite a people moved out of the South Side of Chicago. Uh, <clears throat> I think in particular uh, white people moved out of South Side of Chicago in the I don't know what the precise years would have been, but 60s, 70s. Um, and and uh, but like in the case of Detroit, right? Detroit's been very successful in recent years. And there are definitely people who identify as Detroit Tigers fans. Uh, I mean, they, I think they do pretty well in terms of attendance. Is, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, I think for a city that is not doing well economically, they are, their team is doing just fine. Right. And so I guess, I guess the question I have is, um, <clears throat> is it, what, like, what do we know about, about the way, about the ways in which it's it's a I'm I'm not smart enough to ask the question I want to ask, but the idea is um, about the the ways that teams sort of project an identity in terms of or they want to um, certainly the organizations want to um, want to have a claim on representing the city, but there's also obviously it's uh, in cities that that have demonstrated considerable segregation. Um, they, it's hard to represent the entire city at the same time. Yes. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I would like to answer thoughtfully, but I'm not sure what to say beyond I agree with what you just said. But do we know that, do we know, I mean, do we know about, actually, um, Peter Gammons, uh, uh, Gammons Daily was writing this about the declining number of, um, African Americans in the draft and also uh, related to that. And I didn't know this. Um, maybe the lack of scholarships in, in baseball at the collegiate level. Yeah, there's not very many. I mean, the the NCAA does not allow uh, baseball teams to give full rides to everyone on the roster. They have to pick and choose. I think twelve or thirteen uh, scholarships per team. Uh, so it's like basically half the team is on scholarship. Is that is that true? Now, wait, what is it for football? Uh, everyone, I think, maybe besides like the kicker and some Rudy type walk on, but almost everyone in basketball and football is on is on scholarship. So wait, baseball is limited to 
12 or 15 or some number like that. I think it's 12 or it might have been like 11 and a half a few years ago. They had like a half scholarship they were allowed to give. I'm not exactly sure what it is now, but it's in the low teens, I think. And is that a new development? No, this has been a, uh, this is, baseball is not a giant revenue generator for the NCAA. And I think as we see, um, in a lot of other sports that are money losers, they're essentially subsidized by football and basketball. And they only exist because of how much money those sports bring in that fund the existence of the other sports. Baseball is on the list of sports that is a net loss for a university. But I assume that's not the case for that's uh, that's overall of the NCAA teams. It's not the case for certain programs, I'd assume. Right, like Stanford baseball probably does fine. And like uh, South they, Carolina seems to have a big following. Yeah, right. There are pockets where baseball is successful. Um, but overall, I think the, the NCAA baseball program is not a revenue winner for the, for the colleges. Right. Uh, what do we know? I mean, is baseball is obviously, I mean, it, baseball is uh, in terms of, or financially is as healthy now as it's ever been. Is that right? Yeah. More healthy. Yeah. More Projecting healthy. 9 billion in revenues this year, which is uh, a lot. But do, uh, do we know if it, does it have as wide a reach as it has had in the past? Well, I guess it depends on how you would define wide. I mean, I think internationally the game is extremely popular. Uh, I think we can see the rise of baseball in Asia and, and uh, you know, outside of just the normal hubs of America and South America uh, or Central America, I guess. Um, we, we see baseball expanding its reach uh, globally. I, I think you could a- ask a legitimate question whether its domestic reaches has increased or decreased and um, that's a complicated question because you're getting into issues of um, kind of this, the segmentation of, of America and, uh, you know, the, the fact that there used to be um, fewer competition for eyeballs. And now there were three channels and now there's three million channels and Netflix and you can watch whatever you want. And uh, it seems like the the participation of the country in any one thing is probably down from what it was 50 years ago. So relative to the just the normal changes in broadcasting, is baseball down? I don't actually know. I know that like uh, during the last year, uh, following the the Boston uh, Marathon bombings, that uh, there was obviously an attempt, and probably a successful attempt to the degree that the Red Sox are quite popular in Boston, to use that team to use the Red Sox as sort of a, an instrument for community. Or for you know citywide pride. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'm curious as to the degree that that, that exists. And, and again, I, this is the question I'm asking poorly. Um, and maybe you've already maybe you've already said how well you'll be able to answer it. But <clears throat> there seems to me in in some cases to be a divide between the degree to which the teams purport to represent their cities and the degree to which they actually do represent their cities. Yeah, I think to me, when I think of a team being used as a representation of their city, it's when they're successful. So (laughs) the Red Sox represent Boston when they're winning. And, I mean, maybe maybe the Red Sox are not a great example because a lot of people do associate with uh, the Boston area and have very strong local ties. But I don't think anyone thinks of, like, the Kansas City Royals representing Kansas City. I mean, you think of, you know, the other things that are in Kansas City before you think of the Royals, because they've been bad for a very long time. And uh, I don't think that this kind of, like, attachment to the team comes from just having the team. It comes from wanting to 
ride the coattails of the team's success. Wait, so, okay, so here's the question. The, the Tampa Bay Rays have been um, quite good oh, for what now, five to seven years, something like that? Five uh, years? Yeah, approximately six years, yeah. Um, and people still don't appear to go to their games. Um, Correct. I mean, on on the on the web, they, I mean, certainly on the web, they seem to have a, um, you know, relative to some other clubs, a small but very impassioned fan base, and they also seem to attract uh, people from other fan bases who maybe appreciate the fact that the club has been or the front office has been able to assemble such good teams with such uh, such few dollars. Um. But generally speaking, they don't have a, they don't have a huge team. Is there anything? Is there a flip side? Is there is there a team that you could think of in baseball that has been that has received a lot of attendance relative to the quality of the team? The Chicago Cubs. <laughs> so the history of the Cubs. I mean, this is kind of the the running joke about the Cubs, right? Is you go to see Wrigley or you go to be uh, part of the depressed crowd watching your team lose. I mean, even when the Cubs celebrated whatever it was the the greatest Cubs of all time uh, last week, and then they just bungled the game away in the ninth inning, and everyone was like, yep, that's the Cubs. Like, they just totally expected everyone on their Cubs to celebrate their history day to pull a loss out of a win. Uh, and, uh, you know, it certainly doesn't hurt them in attendance, and they're a very popular franchise, but it's almost like a masochistic popularity of, like, let's all join together and be depressed. Are there any um, – and, and so how is – I mean – it, may, it might just be based on the age of it, but how has that developed? I mean, how has that happened that they've been able to cultivate a fan base uh, with that considers itself entirely allegiant, and yet they haven't won at all? I think part of it is like there's maybe a tipping point at which losing becomes comical. So mm-hmm. if you lose for ten years, that's annoying. If you lose for twenty, that's miserable. If you lose for thirty, that's ridiculous. And then you get to like 50 or 60. Now it's just like part of your identity. Like this is who we are. Like we've re- we've gotten past the point of I would like to start winning again. And now it's like, yep, we're the Cubs. We lose. This is just our shtick. And so you associate with the shtick. And you, if you're a Cubs fan and you've grown up and you've never seen your team win a World Series, it's just kind of part of who you are. Of like we live in this mentality of we suck and we're always going to suck. And I've never known anything different. Yeah, okay, but if you're an owner and you and you have a you have a fan base that uh, embraces losing, that must be like the sweet spot, right? Yeah, right. That's you do nothing and reap reap the financial gain. Uh, I think in baseball at this point, the league is so rich that any franchise owner is going to reap financial gain. I mean, we've seen Jeffrey Loria is going to do quite well with his pillaging of the Marlins. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to run a team in a, in a smart way to make money as a, as a baseball owner right now. I do think there's uh, some kind of pride, and this is maybe why Theo Epstein uh, is in Chicago, is he's already broken the curse in Boston, and he wants to potentially be the guy who breaks the one in Chicago and, you know, can – be the guy who broke the two most famous curses in, in baseball history. I think there's a, a desire to win that uh, maybe transcends just the fact that, well, we don't need any more money because the fans are going to come to the stadium anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, but but it, you you said like like Loria will make his money regardless. But Tom Ricketts must be pretty excited about having bought that team. I think so. I mean, I think anyone who bought a baseball team within the last five years is excited about what valuations of it have done since they bought their team. I mean, it's, uh, 
Uh, it depends on when they sell. I mean, I think there's probably some air in some of these valuations, but if the Ricketts family wanted to sell in the next few years, I think they would uh, consider that a pretty pretty savvy financial investment. Has anyone lost money owning a baseball team? Well, I think it's tough to say. I mean, no one sells for less than they bought for. So if you bought a team, you're not going to end up taking a loss on the sale, but you can run operating losses over the, the years, and there's a significant opportunity cost. If you're buying a team for $100 million, you could have invested that money and gotten a significant return on the stock market. And if you only get a 3 or 4% return uh, per year when you sell, then you lost money relative to what you could have done. So uh, no one's going to buy a team for $100 million and then have to sell it for 75 um, or buy it for a mil- billion and sell it for $800 million. Um, but how you calculate their gains over the time of ownership requires some finagling. What is the uh, what is the opportunity to cost for you of uh, doing the podcast uh, each week and specifically this week? Well, specifically this week, it's sleep uh, because <laughs> the, the red eye got me a couple of hours of interrupted uh, shut eye. So I'm I'm awake at a time I would not like to be awake. Um, but I think on a weekly basis, it just generally costs me some sanity. <laughs> I will let you go. I'll let you go, Dave Cameron. Okay, I will go sleep and game some sanity, hopefully. All right. Well, uh, stick around for one second, but uh, for the purposes of the podcast, you're done. So uh, so thank you, Dave Cameron. Thank you. And yeah. Baltimore in black and white at the Maryland Film Festival this weekend. Go support my cousin. There you go. Right. Uh, and you said Friday evening and Saturday morning. Correct. There's two showings. Okay. That is uh, Dave Cameron. Uh, he's managing at her fingers and also uh, a – Participant, if only at a distance, in in that film, uh, the aforementioned film. Uh, I'm Carson Stooley, and this has been a a wide-ranging edition of Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.